Welcome to the Open Door Cutting Room Floor Podcast, where we continue the conversation that started on Sunday to help you become more like Christ throughout the week. I'm your host, Clay Wright. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome back to the Open Door Cutting Room Floor Podcast. My name is Clay Wright, and it's really exciting to be here with you and uh, for me to be kind of looking toward you. And I know you're able to see us for the first time, uh, which is super exciting. And so I'm here with you, and you and I are here with Pastor Jim. So, Pastor Jim, it's good to be here with you. Glad to be here. I love it. And uh, we are in Jim's outer office right now. So That's right. These are a lot of Jim's books right here. Mm-hmm. Very fun, very fun stuff. <laughs> um, these are the more popular reading books. They're quite a different collection here. That's right. That's right. And uh, we're here and uh, we're experimenting with this format and trying to uh, just try some new things as we're getting into this next step excursion. And so I'm going to hold up this excursion guide. Hopefully you got one of these on Sunday if you were uh, worshiping with us. If not, make sure to pick one up this Sunday because this has got a lot of helpful tools and exercises and discussion questions as we are digging into really trying to ask the question about what our next step is Mm. as individuals, as a church, and trying to grow more and more into the image of Christ. And along with that, one of the main components is uh, this teaching out of the Word of God that we're receiving. And so we're continuing our study of the book of Luke this week, and then we're kind of jumping off into an excursion. And we opened up to Luke chapter 6 this week. Yeah, I mean, actually, as we've been working our way through Luke, this has became kind of a springboard for us. It's not mm-hmm. like we, we started here. It's more like this is where we um, are starting the journey and the excursion from just working our way through Luke. It's kind of fun mm-hmm. uh, because you never know what you're going to find with Luke. That's right. That's right. And so this this uh, past week, as we got into the sermon that we'll kind of unpack and talk about more here and continue that conversation we were looking at Jesus calling the 12 apostles, or would you say, is he calling his disciples? Right, yeah. That's, well, the, the, let's look at the text. Sure. Um, verse 13, verse uh, 13, when morning came, he called his disciples to him and then chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Right. We read that in one or two seconds, but when did he designate them apostles? Mm-hmm. And the other thing that's easy to skip over is the plural of he called his disciples to him, and we can skip right past that to the choose the 12. How many disciples did he call to him? Mm-hmm. Were there 100? Were there 500? Were there, you know, 30? We, we really have no sense of how big the crowd of disciples. And, and each one of the gospel writers actually helps us get a bigger, bigger picture of there was a lot of disciples that Jesus had early in his ministry, but then it began to whittle down, partially because of this, he chose the 12, but even after this 12, you have instances of many disciples were with him, things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so he's he's calling a group, and then he's calling out of that group the 12, uh, the 12 to be with him. And again, as we said, when did he designate them apostles? Was that something that he had gave him a speech, you know, because... Because, you know, what we have here from Luke is that he names the 12. That's pretty significant. And then, boom, he goes off into this uh, discourse of people coming to get healed and people to hear him. Mm-hmm. And then Luke records well, what we call the Sermon on the Plain, mm-hmm. which is so similar to the Sermon on the Mount. Um, whereas when Matthew gives us the list of disciples, 
he gives them to us in Matthew 10, but the Sermon on the Mount was Matthew 5. Right. Uh, so um, it's hard to know. And also Matthew does not call them apostles um, right away. So Luke is compressing here something. And it's good for us to remember that because I don't think that he designated them apostles in the same breath that he said, you know, come to me. Uh, even comparing Mark, like Mark 3, Mark, I love how Mark says he called them to be with him mm-hmm. uh, and that he might send them out. So so there's, you know, a picture of how long is it going to be together before he actually sends them. Uh, so, yeah, it's kind of cool. Yeah. And, and in the midst of all that, the other thing we can ask with Luke is same same question we've been asking as we've been studying is why is Luke putting this here? Right. What does he want us to see? Because... Um, because Luke is compressing and because he's being intentional with the, the development of the story and the narrative to help us see something, mm-hmm. a question that I kept on asking during the sermon and as I was reflecting on the sermon and on the text is, you know, it's really interesting. I'd never thought about it before that Jesus didn't have to call mm. 12 yeah. to be with him. Right. It's a, it's a decision strategically that he made. That's what I believe. Yeah. And, and I know, uh, you, you know, you've, taught that before, but I, I was kind of like having that aha moment for mm-hmm. myself for the first time. And so can you, can you help us kind of situate that? Why is that significant mm. in the course of Jesus's ministry yeah. that he's making this decision to, you know, what, what has he been doing? And then how does, how does this impact his ministry moving forward? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And I think an important question, um, because I am one of those and you are, and I think we, we know some others that are that do see a lot of strat, uh, strategy in Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the longest time, I personally kind of saw Jesus as more like a wandering rabbi, or we could say a wandering Jew. That's that's a plant, but it's also <laughs> yeah. the way I saw Jesus. I just I just thought he was wandering around, you know, being led by the Spirit to go here, then go there. But as I began to be more familiar with the Gospels, I started seeing strategy mm-hmm. in Jesus. And once I saw that, then other things began to fall into place. And I began to see strategy in places I'd never seen it before. I think also as I grew as a leader and thought about how I am, you know, seek to be strategic as Mm -hmm. a leader. um, Jesus, just Jesus as a leader is a fascinating study all by itself. Um, But his leading here, you think about, he's got, he knows he has three years and in three years, he's got a cast vision for the kingdom of God. He's got to teach some foundational things about the kingdom of God. He's got to train yeah. his disciples so that they can train. He's got to cover a lot of ground. And, you know, I don't know, did he think the night, you know, verse 12 says he was up there praying all night. Did he think to himself, well, should I choose three? You know, should I choose six? Yeah. Hmm, 12 is a good number, mm-hmm. you know, because of the 12 uh, tribes. I don't know if Jesus was having that, that thought process as a strategic thinker and leader, um, but somewhere he made a decision, okay, I'm not going to just preach to the masses and I'm not going to just do this one-on-one. I, I'm going to start this thing called a group. And we've talked other times about, you know, Jesus didn't invent groups of disciples. Mm-hmm. That was a very common scene walking right. around Israel in those days. You would see a rabbi with 10, 12 disciples following or surrounding. So, you know, I, I used to think that Jesus invented the whole idea of, of a group, but he, he didn't. Um, he took a, 
um, a, a structure that was already common. In fact, yeah. we, we I think we said weeks ago that even Aristotle and Plato and, and Socrates, you know, three or four or five hundred years before that, had disciples and mm-hmm. taught in groups. Um, but Jesus is not just teaching a philosophy. He's not just teaching a way of looking at the world. He's actually training his disciples to send them out. Mm-hmm. You don't see that kind of strategic focus with Socrates' disciples, Aristotle's disciples. Right. All you see is, I want you to learn these things. I want you to learn a philosophy. I want you to learn a way of looking at life. But Jesus is like, no, I, I, I want this to be passed on strategically. We want to change the world. We want to, this is a revolutionary group. Mm-hmm. And so in his mind, somewhere he, he decided it's not enough to preach. It's not enough to do one or two people here. I've got to, I'm going to do it with 12. And so why not 36? Why not, why not a hundred? Why not 120? You know, mm-hmm. that's what happens in the book of Acts. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know the answer to the question, except for the fact that I see this very strategic on Jesus's part. And I, you know, I, I sometimes, uh, talk about when we're leading trips to Israel and Greece. Mm-hmm. You know, the first time I led, I thought it'd be fun to get as many people as we can go. Well, the first time I, I led group a group to Israel, I think we had uh, twenty people, and I thought, "Oh, that's that's pressing. That's that's almost too much." <laughs> yeah. And the, the next time we had eighteen, I think, and I'm like, "Oh, this is better." I think the next time we had twenty eight, I'm like, "Okay, that's it." We're never, we're never <laughs> and I, what, what I discovered was that leading a group of people around, mm-hmm. which is what Jesus did. It starts to get cumbersome when you get too big of a crowd, mm-hmm. and um, I think from just that standpoint, twelve is brilliant. Then you think about the dynamics of of a group discussion. You know, yeah. you've led yeah. plenty of groups to realize that if, if you only have two people, it's it's it almost becomes either a counseling session or ping pong. If you have you know twenty people, it's hard to have a discussion. It's almost like twelve is like the perfect number for people not to get lost in the group, but also not to be dominated. So mm-hmm. you know, there's other dynamics besides this, the strategy of passing on a vision and a revolutionary message. You know, maybe just the, the dynamics of trying to really connect with you know, a fair amount of people. Yeah. Well, you know, whatever it is, Jesus is brilliant. And so that's really the whole reason why we're doing this is because we're seeing what Jesus is doing. I think mm-hmm. I used the language of, if you want to follow Jesus, how about if we follow him in this? He put together groups. Let's yeah. follow him in that. You know, that's right. Yeah, I, I remember. Uh, I may have talked about this before on the podcast, but when I was learning to be a teacher in school, they they had this assignment called Jesus the Master Teacher assignment. Mm. Oh, I would love that. Where it, sounds awesome. <laughs> you you read through the Book of Luke, yeah. and you have to highlight every time when Jesus is teaching, instructing, preaching, oh. any time that he's discipling someone, any method that he uses. I'd like, did you, you write a paper on that? Yeah. I'd yeah. love to read that. Yeah. That it's, sounds uh, cool. I think that was my, um, either my sophomore or junior year. That's And neat. so then you draw all these conclusions. Luke. Oh yeah. Cool. Yeah. Because there's so many, uh, yeah. just the way that Luke describes it, you know, it's, I mean, it's, Jesus is using all sorts of different methods in all of the gospels, yeah. but you know, yeah. Mark is more action oriented, so you don't get as many of the group dynamics. Yep. Uh, so that was, it's a lot of fun, and you because you're recognizing just what you said. Jesus is brilliant, yeah. and he's he's not just um, doing things haphazardly, no, no, but he's he's uh, he's doing things uh, 
in some ways as well as they could possibly be done. I mean, exactly. I guess in every way. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, I wrote a paper one time on ways Jesus could improve. <laughs> oh, did you now? I'd love to read that paper yeah, after. It's really short. <laughs> um, but uh, it doesn't exist. So what's what's interesting about you know look at reading in narratives, which which the four gospels are narratives, but mm-hmm. they're they're still distinct from other biblical narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that they're, um, you know, they're a mixture of genres because you also have parable in there, but also they're not just GoPro footage, right? They're also trying to help us to see something. So they're intentional narratives. I used to be popular to say that the Gospels were not biogra- biographies. Mm. I I, um, I disagree, and I'm starting to see other scholars sure. who are starting to say, uh, they're not biographies the way we kind of think of classic biographies, right. but they are very biographical. Absolutely. And so biographical narratives, narrative mm-hmm. biographies, you know, uh, so, yeah. For sure. Yeah. And th- so there's like, yeah, the, people like smash a couple of different genre words together to try to speak to it. But mm-hmm. in any kind of story, we have to, as good biblical uh, students of the word, uh, discern between what's prescriptive and what's descriptive. Right. And so when we talk about Jesus using right. strategy, we're sort of insinuating that, hey, there's something here that we can learn. Mm-hmm. There's something here that, hey, maybe that's helpful for us to take into account. And in that sense, it might be, uh, well, you know... Let's define descriptive and prescriptive. Yeah. Descriptive is he's describing, the, the, the author is describing something that he's seeing. Right. And there's no intention of this being a teaching material. There's no intention of this being something you should follow. Mm-hmm. I'm just telling you something he did. Right. Whereas prescriptive is, okay, this is a, a teaching or a method or a way you should follow. Mm-hmm. And when you think about the New Testament or the whole Bible with those two categories, it really helps. Okay, now I'm, that's a big step in helping me to apply the Bible. Exactly. Not everything is descriptive. Not everything is prescriptive. And how do mm-hmm. I tell the difference? And it helps you kind of... So go ahead. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, as we're looking at this, we're saying there's something about this group dynamic that seems strategic on Jesus's part. That's, in, in a sense, prescriptive for yeah, us as so. his disciples. I really am convinced of that. Uh, but then, you know, I think we can ask, but all, you know, all the 12 that he called into that group were all men. So is it prescriptive to, mm-hmm. you know, are there are there also descriptive elements sure. here? Sure. Um, and so I, I think that's an interesting category to think into that can be helpful because I, th- I think sometimes we can be overly dogmatic about, <laughs> yeah. you know, we need to wear sandals because Jesus wore sandals. <laughs> right. like, no, no, that's, <laughs> you're, you're missing the point here. You're right. just, and yet here's, you know, by contrast, I think some, some people could maybe make that argument about Jesus calling the 12, you know, as we've said, it's like, you know, it's part of the Pharisaical tradition or part of the rabbi tradition. Uh, and so it, it wasn't, it was something common that happened in that day. Maybe it's more historically oriented. I think we can say, well, hold on, pump the brakes there. This, this is a big moment for Jesus. And it seems to be very intentional on his part. Yeah, there are definitely, um, they, they tend to be atheistic scholars, which may sound strange to some people that there are atheists who study the New Testament. Mm-hmm. There are brilliant PhD New Testament study scholars who, who are atheists. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time I discovered that, I was like, huh? How, why? Why? Because, well, they think it's historically fascinating, you know? Yeah. But uh, not everybody. In fact, I've learned things. I, it's kind of odd to say, I've actually learned things from scholars who who, who, who are atheists. <laughs> There's one right there. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's uh, calling, to, <laughs> calling to share. Uh, so, um, 
so there's some people who who don't believe that um, that discipling is a method that we should follow. Mm-hmm. It's just a descriptive thing that we're just following. You know, a, a narrative of Jesus talking, having this story. Yeah, it's, it's so funny. I I was reading yesterday about an argument of some people who were making that the Sea of Galilee is a fiction. Interesting. <laughs> and uh, this is just a tangent, but. Um, as I'm reading along, I came across this one phrase that I just loved, and it was the phrase was this: "Those who are familiar with the region tell us." And I thought to myself, "Wait a minute, this guy has never been to Israel. He's <laughs> never been to the Sea of Galilee." So one of the things they were arguing about is that you know it's not a sea. What it is is a little pond, and uh, I agree, it's not a sea like the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, and they were also saying this whole idea that, that Jesus walked on the water during the storms, you know, it was a little pond. There was just ripples. There was, there's no way that white caps could form. And I, and I thought to myself, uh, it, it took me four trips, but on my fourth trip, maybe fifth trip to Israel, a storm blew up. And I saw very quickly it go, the water go from smooth to rough to violet mm-hmm. and the white caps. And I'm like, there it is. That's. I've heard that described. Yeah. And so I'm thinking to myself, this person who's writing this article arguing against the existence of a large body of water in Israel um, has never been. He's, <laughs> he's relying on what other people who have said. Mm-hmm. And I thought, this is such an easy thing to, to you know, blow up. Go to Israel. Yeah. Hang around for a while <laughs> and you'll see it's a big lake. Now, is it as big as compared to Lake Ontario, Lake Erie? No, mm-hmm. but it's not a pond. Right. There's no way. Even, but it's another funny thing is people in the UK call the Atlantic Ocean the pond. Yeah, that's <laughs> right? true. So, you know, <laughs> words get used different ways. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, sometimes these scholars who are making these strong assertions, uh, you know, do you, are you really following the Jesus you're describing? Well, then you're going to miss a lot of the things that he's saying mm-hmm. because you're trying to follow him Merely as a scientist, and Jesus can't be understood right. if all you're fo- following is him scientifically mm-hmm. or merely historically. Yeah, Th- that's one of the biggest difficulties with you know when we talk about different different ways to interpret the Bible. Mm-hmm. If if it's never going to impact your life, you can keep kicking the can down the road and be yeah. like, well, you know, I'm not really sure what that means, and argue and we'll, all day about it. But if you're, if you got to preach this weekend or if you, you know, (laughs) or if you've got to come up with an opinion or, or if you believe that God is trying to speak to you through it and, and give you wisdom for your life and Mm -hmm. call you into something deep and beautiful, Mm -hmm. then it matters. And so it, it, it kind of motivates you to say, all right, Lord, even if I'm not going to perfectly understand everything about what's going on here, what are you trying to show me? What are you trying to say to me? Yeah, as Jesus says at the end of Matthew's account on the Sermon on the Mount, you know these words are meant to be applied. Do exactly, them. and mm-hmm. so yeah, you're missing everything. And and then as a part of that, I loved how uh, in the excursion guide we had a quote in the in the life group questions from a study Bible that talked about our call to make disciples out of Matthew 28. Mm-hmm. And so it, because we're called to make disciples. Uh, we we study how Jesus made disciples, and we want to replicate him in that. And so, well, and then yeah, the, the nature of disciple is that y- you are following to learn to become. Okay, right. so if I'm going to become like Jesus, what did he do? He made disciples. Mm-hmm. So it's built into 
the, actually the, the accurate definition of the word. Right. If a person is only being a disciple and not making disciples, then they're really not being a disciple of Jesus. They're only partially mm-hmm. fulfilling what it means to be a disciple. And we'll, we'll talk more about that as we, as we get to talking about the, uh, yeah. the stages of growth, because I think that's, that'll be really helpful as we're getting into the excursion to think a little bit more about that. But before we do, I did want to mention uh, people who are careful readers of the Gospels might recognize that Luke's list of huh. the names of the apostles right. is different yep, than yep, the list yep. in Mark, which is different <laughs> from the list in Matthew. And mm-hmm. so... Um, we, we've, we've talked about this before. There are things that on the face can seem like contradictions in the gospels, Mm -hmm. but at, at closer inspection, um, there are good explanations, explanations for these sorts of things. So I I wondered if you would share a little bit out of your study, why are those differences there? Well, um, I think the easiest way to explain this is to look at the most famous disciple, um, which is who? Peter. Well, that's not his name. Uh, Simon? <laughs> no, you got the wrong guy. Cephas. Well, which one is it? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that worked out fun. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, I mean, Peter has got three names. And so what's mm-hmm. up with that? And there's there's two um, uh, helpful things to understand is, number one, it wasn't uncommon for people to have multiple names. Um, and sometimes that came because... Um, it's, it's a Greek crowd versus a Jewish crowd, a right. Hebrew crowd. Sometimes it came because of a nickname, like uh, there's a guy in the New Testament named Joseph, mm-hmm. but everybody knows him as Barnabas. He's in Acts chapter 4, I think around verse 32. Joseph um, from Cyprus, who all the disciples called Barnabas. Well, mm-hmm. Barnabas was a nickname. Bar means son of, novice means encouragement. And the funny thing is, is you see Barnabas encouraging people throughout the book of acts so you know it's a nickname so mm-hmm. and, and there's so there's reasons for names because of different uh, languages and there's reasons for two different names because of nicknames and that's the name peter uh, his name was simon that's his, that was his given name yep and jesus says i will call you peter which means rock yep um and then cephas is just a latin word word for rock latin word for stone so there, you know, there's a nickname and uh, different names by different languages. And then secondly, you also have, when well, this is kind of a nickname, but uh, it's like a family name. And so the, the family calls you this name and then that gets, you know, recorded and starts getting used. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we, we talked about how, oh boy, I'm trying to remember. Um <laughs> we, we just talked about this, an example recently that in the book of Acts, oh, it's uh, in the book of Acts, um, you know, this was the Greece trip. In the book of Acts, a man named Silas, Paul's first uh, or Paul's second missionary journey uh, co-leader, Paul and Silas. Yep. Uh, whenever Paul refers to him, his name is Silas. Um, and I'm sorry, whenever Luke refers to him, it's Silas in the, the book of Acts. In the epistles, both Paul's epistles and Peter's epistles, he's called Sylvanus. Right. And it's the same guy. Sylvanus is the Latin name. Silas is the Hebrew name. Mm-hmm. So nicknames, family names, different language names um, all add up to help you get different explanations for why there's multiple names. Yeah. So I, this is a historical question. So the New Testament is written in Greek, mm-hmm. which was the common language of the day. But obviously Latin was also 
Not yet. It, it wasn't. Not, not, so then... it, it was not. Wasn't common yet. Okay. It was common in Italy. Gotcha. And it was common in like in Roman colonies, but it wasn't common throughout the Roman Empire. Hmm. So I um, wonder if there's a an argument that Paul made it to Rome based on the fact that he uses Latin when mm. he's referring to Silas. Uh, but, yeah, interesting. I mean, the reason, <laughs> I the reason why Greek was was the most well known language because uh, when Alexander the Great conquered mm-hmm. the then known world, right, um, which is you know three hundred four hundred BC, he, he, his kind of conquering was to plant libraries and mm-hmm. cultural centers and schools in every major city. And again, brilliant strategy because he's not just trying to conquer; he's trying to inculcate a Greek way of seeing things. And and so when the Romans uh, conquered the Greek empire, Alexander the Great's empire, they didn't do as good of a job of inculcating their, their educational values. Mm -hmm. Uh, What they did do a great job of is inculcating like legal um, values. And so the Roman law codes were spread throughout the Roman Empire. Right. But so you, that's why people talk about the Greco-Roman world because mm-hmm. really both of those cultures and uh you know two sets of gods, <laughs> two sets of values mm-hmm. were both were blending. And then when you get to the nation of Israel, you've got Greco-Roman Hebrew. Actually, we should say Hebrew, Hebrew Roman uh Greco. Yeah. <laughs> kind of a cuz Hebrew would be first. Mm-hmm. What a mishmash and of language and values right, and right. culture, and uh, you can once you start seeing these things, you can see all of those um, threads yep. uh, throughout the Gospels. It's facts actually fascinating. And one of the places that you see that is in some of the differences in the apostles. Oh, for sure, and in, in their backgrounds, which we did talk about on Sunday. But I also wondered if you could. Uh, bring us a little bit more into who are these guys oh and what do we know about them? Yeah, so let's just start with, like the, I said, you know, there's Hebrew, Greco-Roman. So let's start with Hebrew. Yep. Um, you know, Simon the Zealot, what did that mean? Mm-hmm. We didn't talk about that a whole lot Sunday, but Zealots were had made vows to take every opportunity to murder and to uh, Romans— uh, especially Roman leaders, Roman thought leaders, Roman mm-hmm. military leaders, and were constantly plotting and seizing opportunities to stab, to you know, kill, to wipe out um, families, individuals. I mean, they, they, they took a vow to do this all for the sake of you know Israel and for the purity of Israel. Yeah, to cleanse—that's the word they use—to cleanse the nation to cleanse the land, for them, same thing, <laughs> um, of this Roman oppression. It's hard for us to grasp how much good Jews hated the Romans. Mm. And one of the reasons is because the Romans were just brutal. You know, the iron fist was a real thing. Um, you know, I was talking with somebody, maybe it was you recently, that we were talking about how there would be certain roads that were lined with crucifixions. Mm. This was not uncommon. Rome was trying to send a message, don't mess with us. And that's just unbelievably brutal. So, you know, we know the story of Jesus uh, when he was you know, a baby and Herod sent an army to, or soldiers to kill every child under age two in the Judean Bethlehem, Judea, Jerusalem region. Yeah. Let that sink in. That is 
beyond brutal. Mm. It's just, and so you know, there's lots of good wow. reasons for the Jews to hate the Romans. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Jews were very proud, nationalistic people. They were very proud of their country, and and the Romans were a constant reminder that we're not free. And so these zealots um, were sworn um, enemies of Gildor. No, sworn <laughs> enemies of, of Rome and that, that took it seriously. Yeah. And so uh, some people have actually thought that um, Iscariot was, for Judas Iscariot, that he might have been a zealot, that his name may have come from a word for dagger, yep. and that he might have been a zealot as well. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to believe that it's more... Uh, a region near Jerusalem, Kerioth. Um, but so, there, so there's Simon the Zealot, and 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 who is he in the disciples' party with? Matthew. Mm-hmm. We think about you know because we watch the chosen. We think about you know Peter trashing Matthew. What's he doing in the group? But how did Simon the Zealot and Matthew, the former Roman sympathetic tax collector, how did they keep from killing each other? Or how did Simon keep from <laughs> killing Matthew? Yeah, that's an. If you let that sink in for me, that's an amazing thing that mm-hmm. for three years they lived together. They got along. Right. And so, you know, there's two big characters. Again, the, the Jews hated Matthew. And you can see some of that um, in the, the Gospels. Uh, and I think the Chosen uh, rightfully exaggerates that. Mm-hmm. And when I say exaggerates, I mean makes more of it than the Gospels do. But I don't think they're exaggerating it culturally right uh, I, I think that's one of the things that they do i do a really good job of is yeah helping those of us who don't know about first century jewish culture realize how, how much despised tax collectors were so mm-hmm. i think a lot of people know about matthew so uh then um there uh, you know sometimes we have to be careful about the chosen I th- i've talked about this before you know like the chosen has nathaniel as an architect well that's completely fabricated you know, there's <laughs> there's nothing in the new testament that would cause us to believe that Nathaniel has any architectural leanings, let alone yeah. that he is an architect. Right. Or, and I think he's also the character with a limp. Is that? That's, it, that's uh, little James. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, which again, that's not in the Bible. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And, you know, some people are really upset about that. I'm not, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's like a good novel. The, the, the chosen never describes itself as, you know, a word for word, a literal account. What they're right. saying is we're accurate to the day, to the culture, to the times, and we're, we're um, filling out the, the story of the gospel. Because these are real people living real lives. Right. And so maybe one of them does have a limp, and maybe one of them is an architect. Because I like that because it helps me realize they're real people. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy for us to put them on a pedestal and think of them you know, as different from us. They, yeah. they weren't. They right. were just like us. Mm-hmm. And so, so Simon, Matthew... Um, Let's see here. Uh, you know, we know about the the, the uh, five fishermen: James and John, Peter and Andrew, and looks like Philip. Um, they were all uh, Philip and and Peter and Andrew were all born in Bethsaida, which was a fishing village. Uh, we never hear about Philip in any of the boats, uh, so maybe he wasn't a fisherman. We know for sure four of them were. Mm-hmm. So you know, one third uh, were. Um, therefore, because we know uh, that that Peter and his brother. Andrew and his friend Philip, all being born in Bethsaida, therefore we know they're Galileans. And because James and John worked with them, they're probably Galileans, but not all of them were, because if Judas Iscariot is from the town of, or the region of Cariot, 
that's southern Israel. That's the Judean hills. So that's a whole different region. If you mm-hmm. look at a map, that's a whole different region from Galilee. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's that one story in, in when Jesus is being tried that the little slave girl recognizes the disciples by their Galilean accents. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's, we think about people from the South. Instantly, I can tell you're from Texas or you're from Mississippi or yeah, the yeah, deep yeah. South or you're from Boston. You know, <laughs> we have those same things in, in our, in our country that they did. Um, um, probably, um, they're not, the, the, the chosen is not off in describing Matthew as an educated guy. Um, he wouldn't be able to ply the trade of being a tax collector if he was an doofus. You know, he, he had to be, <laughs> yeah. you know, probably studied. Mm-hmm. Um, and there might be some, some challenges there because more than likely the fishermen, uh, w- when you got to age 12, you had to decide, am I going to go to rabbi school and take the life of a scholar and a teacher, which a lot of people did, or am I going to take the JVS, you know, the, the vocational, uh, trade and, and make money sooner and have a trade that will help me support my family for the rest of my life. And a lot of people did that. And mm-hmm. And, you know, there wasn't a, a real strong caste system like there is in some countries, but there, it still existed. You know, look at Acts 4.13 when the Pharisees kind of make fun of the disciples. They were, they noticed that they were ordinary, unschooled. Yep. It's a little put down, mm-hmm. you know, but, but in a way it's just recognizing they didn't go to rabbi school. Whereas Matthew went to some kind of educational school. Um, so, um, you know, you can start seeing a little bit of this flavor. We, we would love to know more details. And the early church uh, is full of early church literature, which I'm talking about the first couple hundred years, yeah. which, which we would call the, the Catholic church, the early Catholic church, is full of stories. I think some of them very believable, others clearly legend. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was an, a hunger to know um, more uh, about each one of these disciples, right. but as those disciples traveled, because the Book of Acts said they spread throughout the world, as they traveled, well, then you know their stories did get told, mm-hmm. and so I don't have a hard time believing that if if um, uh, who was the person they said went to Spain? Um, well, maybe Peter, but we know a lot about him. But you know, if an early disciple went to a foreign country like Ethiopia or um, or Spain, and lived there, then those people would know his story. Mm-hmm. And if, as these, those records passed on to oral tradition, it's very possible that some of the things we've read about the early disciples that fill out what's more than the New Testament shows us are true. Sure, um, sure. Yeah, I, uh, I recently lent my mom a copy of the Apostolic Fathers, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, which, which is a collection of letters from... Um, you know some some early Clement church, Rome and, yeah, yeah those guys. early church yeah. leaders. Yep, and uh, there's a lot. You know, th- they're not really talking about the first. You know, the, the twelve a, a whole lot, but um, there's a lot of early church literature that uh, it's not it's not scripture, mm-hmm. but it's interesting and it's in a similar style. And well, absolutely, you can read like Polycarp, who mm-hmm. we think he was a disciple of John yep. the Beloved. His writing is full of Johnisms, <laughs> Johannineisms. Uh, why? Because John discipled him, and he was his teacher and his master, and it's beautiful. It's just like you hear 
Jesus' words in John's writing, you hear John's words in Polycarp's writing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And I, I love the... Um, the the letter like the fake letter that you read on Sunday yeah. that was from like the management official right. because <laughs> you know I, I think it's it's interesting that the gospels don't go into more detail about some of the disciples you know or some of the apostles who are you know they're less well known uh-huh. you know we don't know a whole lot about them right uh, and yet it's comforting in a way that their greatness wasn't the point mm. Ooh, that's a good point <laughs> it's like, like you that. know th- these guys yeah. aren't the emphasis yeah. they're a part of the story but jesus is the emphasis and it's what he wants to do in and through them and then you yeah. know at the beginning of acts it says that these are all the things that you know, jesus continued to do mm-hmm. uh presumably through his followers yeah. you know and so even in the book of acts when it's focusing on the apostles and on paul who is you know, also an apostle. Mm-hmm. It's still the focus is in a sense on Jesus and what he's doing in and through them. Yeah. Um, and that's comforting to me because it's not up to me to be great, uh, you know, independently. And, and the first thing I think of when you say that, I really like it, is how John the Beloved described himself, mm. you know, the disciple whom Jesus loved, yep. instead of giving his name. And it, there's a little shyness, a humility scene. Some people might think he's bragging, but it, it's it's just he doesn't use his name. His name is not full in the Gospels. Yeah, the name John does not appear once in the Gospel. Um, so it's it's a little bit of a, a cool picture of his humility I for think. sure. And so in the in the midst of that, another thing I wanted to ask, and this is kind of getting back into the prescriptive versus descriptive okay. conversation, is what is an apostle hmm. and what are the similarities between the 12 apostles and yeah. us as disciples? Yeah. Or, and what are some of the differences? Yeah, <clears throat> I think because of the Catholic Church's emphasis on apostolic succession, that mm-hmm. You know, we want to trace back through a clear line to claim that Peter is the first pope, and therefore, you know, the Roman see the the Roman bishopric is what they called it, um, is you know the the first pope, and and you know it's Peter and all that stuff fitting with was it Matthew sixteen or yeah Matthew sixteen, um, we we have kind of put apostolic succession on this big pedestal and. I almost I would like to almost get rid of the word because not only do we have that to deal with, but then you have the modern day churches who are starting to call their leaders apostles, mm-hmm. and you know what they simply mean is it's a, t- a title of honor, it's a title of authority, right? Because uh, you know the, the two strongest understandings of the word apostle. First, the word as you know means sent, yep. apostolos means sent one, um, and then the, the verbal form form gets used all the time um so it 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 simply means sent one but uh in built into that language of being sent is is our word ambassador Mm -hmm. you are being sent in order to represent the one who sent you so it's not just sent to go do something it's sent to go represent and it's our word ambassador is a great word uh if you're thinking politics you know when there's an ambassador in another country He's not doing his own thing. She's not doing her own thing. They're representing America, America's values, America's decisions. And that's what an apostle is supposed to do, sent to represent. Ooh, that kind of rhymes. Uh, (laughs) I don't think I've ever heard that before. Uh, Sent to represent. Um, So the apostolic succession language and the modern tendency to try to build up leaders by calling them apostles, I think has really ruined 
the New Testament picture. And so in that sense, we are absolutely apostolic. We are absolutely apostles because mm-hmm. we are meant to be ambassadors. That's, Paul picks up that language in Second Corinthians 5. Yep. So, yeah, we're, we're, that's us. We're supposed to be disciples who are following Jesus, to learn from Jesus, to become like Jesus, and apostles who are sent by Jesus to represent him as the light of the world. Absolutely. We, that, that's, that's language that we can embrace, and it's very consistent with the New Testament. Mm, it, and it may be in a similar sense that we're all priests, right? Yeah, it's very good. It's yep. not in yep. the, you know, in, in the Petrine epistles, um, first and second Peter it talks about how we're a holy nation, a royal, a royal priesthood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet we're, we're not priests in sort of the positional sense or right. in the, um, in the sense that, you know, there's this unique priesthood and then there's the rest of everybody else. So yeah, you could use capital P priest, capital A apostles, you know, right. capital D, the 12 disciples. Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, because the, the, the Bible does use the phrase the disciples mm-hmm. uh, to refer to a large group, but then let, further on, it, it starts being more specifically just referred to the 12. Sometimes it'll say the 12, sometimes it'll say the disciples, and it means the 12. Right. And I don't think it capitalizes those in any Bible I know of, but it could. Sure. Um, uh, but it's, you know, the Bible is sometimes fluid, just like in the Old Testament, there's a fluidity between calling. You know, the the nation of Israel is sometimes referred to the whole nation. Mm-hmm. Then after the divided monarchy, when Solomon's son um, sons gets gets split, so you have Israel in the is now just in the north, and Judah right, is right. the two tribes in the south. Well, even after that split, the word Israel gets referred to used to the people in Judah <laughs> and the whole nation. So it's, there's a fluidity yeah. there that once you once you know the context, then you can recognize, okay, it's not a contradiction. It's just the context helps you see. And so, you know, I would be real careful about, I'm not a disciple like Peter was. I'm not an apostle like Peter was or Paul was. That's the 12, you know, that's the original apostles. And no, I'm not, Mm -hmm. I'm not just like them, but I'm a lot like them. And I have the same, um, you know, call to go make disciples. Yes. I don't have the same mantle. Um, and I don't, you don't need to. And I think we need more careful scholarship there because sometimes people blur those lines and, mm. you know, you can do everything the disciples could do. Well, well, no, not necessarily. You know, does that mean that every time I walk someplace, my shadow, like Peter in the book of Acts, his shadow fell on people and healed them. And if I had more faith or if I was more like Peter, no, I want to be more like Jesus. And mm-hmm. Incidentally, there's no place in the New Testament that I know of where the shadow of Jesus healed crowds. <laughs> yeah. It was unique to Peter. I mean, yeah, it, was, yeah. it also didn't happen wherever Peter went. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes people get a little carried away with their teaching about these yeah. kind of things. And, and I think the, the helpful thing about that is it helps us to see that, once again, the emphasis is not necessarily on us. And I love that exactly. word, our mantle but on the person who's sending us and yes. the person who's inviting us and yes. the mission that we're a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I just think that's, it's both affirming to us in our call and it helps us to read the gospels, I think with, with a more ready spirit to mm. apply yeah. and yet not pump ourselves up. Like we have some sort of unique um, mantle or authority that's, that maybe was more descriptive of something that Jesus was doing in the first century. Yeah. 
Um, and so I, I actually want to take a little bit of a pause right now because okay. uh, we have something fun to share. Last week, I mentioned that we've got something fun going on this week. And that's not just that you guys can see us because we're recording uh, with cameras, which if you're listening to this on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts, yeah. you're, you should check it out on, on YouTube because we're, we're videoing this. I, I was alluding to that at the beginning. <laughs> I, I realized... The audio listeners might be a little confused at this at this point, but um, so check it out on YouTube. We'll be posting these videos uh, so you can watch the podcast uh, in video as well. And uh, for all of our podcast listeners, our fun surprises, you may have noticed I'm wearing a what's your next step sweatshirt, which is not available at the coffee bars and is exclusive to cutting room floor listeners. Ooh, exclusive. So, yeah. It, and they have their, <laughs> their hoodies. They've got the hoods and the whole thing. And we've got them in both gray and white, but there are not very many of them. You know, I think there's less than 10 in total. What? Really? Yeah. We, we only got a few of them. Oh, and man. so they're very exclusive collectors. items, And, uh, <laughs> uh, they can be yours. And so the way that you enter into the giveaway for these sweatshirts, it will do uh, a couple giveaways each week on the cutting room floor throughout the course of the excursion. And you can enter that giveaway by texting the word John to our church phone number, four, four, zero, three, two, three, four, six, four, four. John, of course, being the disciple whom Jesus loved. And there'll be a new text word each week uh but this week it's john so if you want a chance to win the sweatshirt go ahead and text the word john to our church phone number 440-323-4644 and there will be a, like a little form for you to fill in your information so that we can uh, get the sweatshirt to you if you were to win it uh but this is just a fun way for us to engage with you as as listeners and also to give you guys a, a chance to get a really cool sweatshirt so and do they get do they get like uh, an extra prize if they get his nickname right his nickname mm, we'll have to we'll have to see that the, the way that the texting works i don't know that if we would be able to see if they texted something other than john uh, so no cool. special prize maybe we can set that up for next week though <laughs> have something a little extra but for this week uh uh if you text it in make sure you tune in next week to the cutting room floor because we will be drawing the winner live during our next episode and sharing the nickname <laughs> and sharing the nickname <laughs> Um, so that, that's our little, uh, our little pause there. And so we will resume now, <laughs> but, um, the, the next thing I wanted to talk about as we're kind of unpacking the sermon and kind of gearing up for the excursion is, uh, you know, as we're talking about being Jesus's disciples, we're talking about growing and, you know, we've talked about how small groups are a great place to grow. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we believe Jesus is strategically calling the 12 to yeah. himself to send them out, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about growing spiritually, you gave us four stages that spiritual development uh, you know, processes through beginning, young, maturing and reproducing. Mm-hmm. And so I wondered, you know, where did those four stages come from? You know, they weren't in our text this week, right. but we were talking about growth. We're talking about being mm-hmm. disciples, but where did those four stages come from? Mm-hmm. And can you tell us a little bit more about them? Yeah. <coughs> well, there's no place in the new Testament that has these four stages beginning, young, maturing, reproducing, um, the, the closest you come to that is First uh, John 2, mm-hmm. where John, the same John that yep. you're talking about, <laughs> um, is writing a, a series of letters. And in this first one, he, he says, I'm writing to you, well, let's just turn to it, First um, John 2, 
I need to get my glasses. First uh, John two. Twelve. First John two twelve. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. Then he repeats the same three categories in the next verses, children, fathers, young men. So, um, you know, we understand these stages of growth in, in terms of humanity. You know, a, a girl or a boy grows up and is you know, a baby, is a child, then maybe an adolescent, and then, mm-hmm. you know, a growing. So that those are three random stages that John gives. Uh, but I'm going to be talking in, in this next week's sermon about how there's other places in the New Testament, like Hebrews chapter 6, that talks about, you know, leaving behind elementary, a word we use to describe children in preschool, in, in yeah. school, yeah. and pushing on to maturity. So... Um, there, there is a recognition, basically, that there is stages that people go through. That you know, we see in Greek language. There's the word brephos, which is a ber- word for babe, you know, an infant. And then there's uh, huios, the Greek word for son. Mm-hmm. Um, there's pedion, which is uh, a, could be a, 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 a from age four to age eighteen. It's a pretty big range. Uh, padia, padeyan, um, and then fathers pater. So you know you have different you know, language uh, words for different stages of growth, and you know there's that language from First Peter, um, like sin, like like babies, like infants desire the sincere milk of the word. I think that's the New American Standard Version translation. Mm. Um, so it's using human categories of growth that we understand to refer. Uh, to a person who's spiritual. So you're a spiritual infant in First Peter. You're a spiritual uh, uh, child in First John 2. You're a spiritual young man in First John 2. You're a spiritual father. So if you were to put together First Peter, is it 2? I think it's First Peter 2, 1, with First John 2, um, verses 12 to 14, you find yep. those three stage, stages. So I wouldn't. it's not something I would be adamant about, but... Um, you know, the New Testament is the is the is the author of this idea of using human categories to describe spiritual growth categories. Yeah, and I think it's a helpful way to talk about. You know, Paul says, "In your thinking, stop thinking like infants." Well, he's not talking about babies; he's talking about <laughs> spiritual infants. Yeah, um, and um, you know, the word elder gets used to refer both to the, the the physical description of an older man. It literally means bearded one, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also gets used to refer to a spiritually wise and mature person, whether they have a beard or not. <laughs> uh, so, um, And so then you take that kind of biblical lexical data, or that kind of word use in the Bible, and then I just kind of blended that with my own pastoral experience. Um, that I can see, you know, mm-hmm. when a person is a young, brand new Christian, they're like a baby, you know? And so there's a reason why Peter says, like newborn babies, you know, they act in many ways like spiritual infants. You know, I don't expect them to be wise, uh, but there's a lot of energy, you know, and there's curiosity. And then, you know, there's, uh, they start growing up, and then I think we can start talking about, you know, young um, children. That's a pretty broad category, but there's there are characteristics of, of young boys and girls that are consistent with young Christians right. and maturing 
uh, some people might want to say, hey, you missed a category. What about adolescence? You know, you, so I, I suppose you could create five or six or eight. Mm-hmm. Um, or you could do, yeah, you could do the, the unborn, you know, the sure. or, or not been born spiritually yet. Right. So the spiritually dead, you know, yeah, uh, and, and which the Bible talks about. Um, you know, th- there's also this, we see this in psychology. And there, you know, there's a guy named Fowler. Is it John Fowler? Uh, a, James Fowler. James Fowler. Ah, yes. Famous stages of growth, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, other famous psychologists who recognize yep. their stages of growth that people go through. Uh, Erickson is yeah, another Erickson. one. He's got, I think, eight stages yep. Yep. of personality development. Yeah. And those are so, <clears throat> like you said, you know, whether we're studying educational psychology or, you know, maybe more importantly, disciple making. Mm-hmm. Having the ability to test yourself, having the ability to to be honest with yourself and sort of invite someone else in to that process and say, okay, let's, you know, let's be intentional about this because growth does not happen by accident. Yeah. In the passage from Hebrews 6 that I quoted, I think I'm going to use that again this this next Sunday. Mm -hmm. The the author to the the writer of the Hebrews is actually kind of admonishing them. Let's leave behind the elementary things. Let's push on. You know, you're... You've you've heard enough of this elementary stuff. Let's move on. You know, it's a, right. It's, an, it's spurring one another on to growth. Uh, so I think it's helpful. As you use the word measure, uh, it's it's helpful to kind of test ourselves and measure ourselves and be sober and honest about it. Paul says in Romans twelve, think of yourselves with sober judgment. Not meaning not drunk. Meaning, you know, take an accurate objective. That would be a good word for us to use sure, today. Be sure. objective about. Honestly, how mature are you? Mm-hmm. Are you still stuck, even though you've been a Christian 10 years, are you still stuck in the behavior patterns of what Paul would call infancy or carnality? Mm. Um, you're, you're thinking like babes. You know, it's not a put down. It's just like, hey, you know, uh, y- you've been around Christ and the church long enough. You should start showing more signs of growth. Yeah. And I'm going to talk l- more about that. Uh, this this next week, and I uh, introduce more completely the stages, and I'm going to talk about how the, you know there's some people that I've seen just rapidly grow. You know, I'm, there's a guy named oh, shoot, I lost his first name, Andrews, Larry Andrews, um, who by the way it was looked like Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> he was a biology professor who I led to Christ in Kansas when I was planting churches, hmm. and when I first met, him, I'm like, dude. I mean, perfect beard, white hair, long hair, just and a brilliant man, biology professor, who grew faster than anybody I have ever known from, you know, complete ignorance about the Christian faith to, you know, surrendering his life to Christ, a true conversion, and grew explosively in two years. I mean, Hmm. I've never seen anyone grow as fast as Larry Andrews. I'd love to know what Larry's up to these days. Um, but you can grow as fast as you want to. Mm. And then I've also seen people, I believe with all my heart, converted, you know, became a Christian and started to grow and then just stopped. You know, what what happened? And they and I'm going to say in my sermon, so I'm giving away some stuff, that what's common in every single person who grows and who stagnates is is whether they identified and took their next step. Mm. That is true for every person. Uh, you don't grow automatically. Absolutely not. Yeah. And when people think you do, well, you know, just like in humanity, people, you know, babies, 
they grow automatically. No, you have to feed them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they have to sleep. Yeah. There's certain things you have to do to, to see, quote, unquote, automatic growth. Mm-hmm. And the exact same thing is true spiritually. And so if you don't take those steps, you will stop growing. Right. But the good news is you can identify your next step and you can grow. You would never have to be plateaued, stagnant, stopped. Mm. Never. There's mm. always a next step, which is exciting to me. Absolutely. Thrilling. Yes. And, and, mm. and one of the things I love the most about these four stages, and it's something that you do see in that first John 2 passage, mm-hmm. is that the goal is not just to be like a sage somewhere. The goal is to be a, a reproductive yes. parent. Yes. And, and I love that. And I think that's wonderful. And I've got a question about it. Do you need to wait until you're more mature or until you're in the maturing stage to start, you know, to start passing things along? Or, mm-hmm. you know, we, another thing we talked about on Sunday is Jesus called the disciples to him so that he could send them out. Mm-hmm. And you talk a lot about how even on our discipleship process, doing ministry as a lifestyle is one of the things that we encourage everyone to do as a first step. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's this receiving yeah. and sending and giving and serving. Yeah. And so do, you know, sh- should people be waiting to, you know, have spiritual children or you know, yes. however you would describe it? Or, or yes. is that something we can start right away? No, there's going to be a minimum of five years. Minimum. Uh, okay. Yeah. You, five years in day one, you can start reproducing, but not until then. Gotcha. <laughs> That's good. Okay. Let me write that down. <laughs> write that <That's> down. <laughs> Um, yeah. And so that helps us see that the, while these stages are helpful, they're not rigid, cut and dried, like five years and one day, I just switched. So mm-hmm. I'm in a different stage. So like, you know, you growing and me growing, you know, we count the, the years, the spirit, the, the, not the spiritual, the physical growth by 365 days. Okay. So now I'm no longer 25. I'm 26. You know, I've, I've changed. It's not rigid like that. As Congratulations, by the way. Oh, thank you. I don't look like I'm 26, <laughs> but I, um, uh, so there's much more fluidity. Yeah. So um, absolutely, there uh, someone could come to Christ um, uh, on Tuesday and lead someone to Christ on Wednesday or Tuesday. You know, mm-hmm. now could they disciple them? Um, strictly they could you know uh, cuz when i t- when i tell you what i know about jesus and you don't know anything about jesus i'm helping you take baby discipleship steps but i'm very limited in how much i can disciple you cuz i'm a brand new christian right so um i, I would love to see people start reproducing sooner and i actually believe that that a young christian can disciple a beginning christian you're one stage beyond them. And I think that would be a fantastic way to spur on and to, uh, to help you grow faster. Yeah. Because you're, you're a teacher. I'm a teacher. I, we learn more mm-hmm. when we have to study and make sure, do I really understand this? And I, sometimes I find I don't understand something until I can explain it. I thought I understood it. But when I tried to explain it, I'm like, hmm, I don't really understand this. <laughs> so in le- learning how to explain it, I grow. Mm-hmm. So what a fantastic way for a young believer to grow, find somebody, you know, lead someone to Christ and help them take those baby steps. And so yeah. you're one day or you're one year ahead of them. Man, what a phenomenal growth plan that is. Yeah. Uh, so yes, a person can show some of the reproducing stage signs as a young Christian. 
Um, but they're not going to show some of the other reproducing signs, which is a increased Bible knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, you you cannot grasp the whole biblical message from ignorance. You know, to you know, six months, you can learn a lot. <laughs> yeah, but you know, the Bible is way too complex. You know, you and I have been studying the Bible most of our you know our whole lives, mm-hmm. and I'm a better example than you because I'm older. I'm still discovering things. You know. Um, now, I'm not discovering things as rapidly as I did in my 20s and 30s, but I am still, thank God, sure. still discovering. Yeah. And so and, you know, mastering the content and the message and the nuances of the Bible is a lifelong adventure. But don't be discouraged by that. There's a lot you can learn very quickly if you're hungry and you have the time to put into it. So that's a long answer to your question. I would love to see more young and maturing Christians uh, move along and start reproducing. Absolutely. And, and, and I would too. And, and part of the reason is because the church is always one generation away yep. from going extinct. Yep, exactly. And I don't remember where I first heard that phrase. Probably from me. It, yeah. It might very well might've been, I know you, when we were going through Ephesians, um, I think there was a I, series where I you, used it when you were a boy. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I, that's a message. That's a, it's actually a statement I heard from one of Andrea's, bosses, um, uh, a woman named Nina Gunter, hmm. who was a pastor and leader in the Nazarene church. When we were Nazarenes, Andrea worked for the world mission department of the whole church of the Na- international church of the Nazarene. Wow. And she was the assistant to this, the leader of it huh. and Nina Gunter. And Nina said that in a message once, and it just stuck in my brain. I was a 20 something the church is always one Christianity is always one generation from extinction. And, um, I don't know if she invented that phrase, but I heard it in in the (laughs) eighties. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, the reason I love that phrase is because it helps to impress the urgency of the mission Absolutely, to become disciple makers. And, um, and one question I wanted to ask along those lines is why do we see, and maybe you're going to talk about this this Sunday, so feel free to, uh, kind of skip well, we've over already first. a bunch of stuff on Sunday. <laughs> yeah, you guys yeah. will have to come Sunday. We'll just cause... replay the cutting room floor <laughs> yeah, on Sunday. Right. You know, it's, <laughs> no, uh, it's uh, you know, why do so many people stagnate before they get to reproduction? Mm. And what are the some of the biggest barriers that you see from that that keep people from taking that step into reproduction? Yeah, I, I'm not. I haven't finished writing my sermon yet. It's only Thursday, so I don't know whether I'm going to get into that. But what <laughs> if I were to, and see. I always struggle. I never have enough content in sermons. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hence, it's cutting the floor, right? So that just blew that up. Yeah, I'm always, you know, not having enough space to say all the things I want to say. One of the things that the first place I would go is Jesus's parable of the soils. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's my knee-jerk place yeah, to go. It's good. You know, the, Jesus gives us several examples of why the seeds stop growing, you know? And uh, it could be cares, concerns, could be temptation, could be... You know, direct attack of Satan. It could be uh, riches. You know, it could be distractions. You know, there's there's actually hundreds and hundreds of things that can derail us, distract us, cause us. Um, it doesn't seem right to say this, but I think the the, the biggest. Uh, I think even more important than bigger than sin. I think the biggest um, obstacle to spiritual growth is the word is distraction. Mm. Um, especially today, 
uh, it's and it's the reason why it's so powerful and so effective is because it's so innocent. It's you know sin. I know I should avoid that, but what's wrong with a little distraction? Yeah, you know, and so yeah, I I think. I'm, I could be wrong. Maybe it is sin, <laughs> but uh, that's obviously a big thing. But I think distraction is is a powerful deterrent to spiritual growth today. Um, a lot of godly mm-hmm. people who are on the right track who get derailed because of simple distractions. And I think there's evidence of that in Hebrews 12, where it says, "Oh man, as we're running the, you know, as we're pursuing Christ." We want to throw off, yeah, we want to throw off the sin that so easily entangles. Mm-hmm. But he goes on just to say, before that, it says throw off everything that hinders. Yeah, I think it's it's after the sin that, that it so easily entangles. And no, I mean, is it first? It, it's first. Yeah, throw yeah. off yeah. everything that hinders and, and the sin that so easily yes, entangles. Yes, And so that right there you can see in that contrast mm-hmm. or that implied contrast, there are things that are maybe otherwise good. Um, yeah, but that can be distractions mm-hmm. or that can be idols, which, Absolutely. which would, I guess, transfer into the sin category. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's e- very easy for a distraction to turn into sin. Very mm-hmm. easy. Yeah. But it, the, the, that's the danger is because it doesn't uh, show up right away as sin. <laughs> it's right. just a simple distraction. You know? Yeah. And so, the, and, and that's yeah. honestly, I think one of the motivations behind us doing something like an excursion yeah. oh. is because we can get easily distracted and this mm-hmm. is an opportunity for us to focus again. And so a, as we um, kind of wrap up here and as we're thinking about and launching into this excursion mm-hmm. about taking our next step, is there anything else that you would want to share on the front end? Mm. Uh, just to reiterate that everyone has a next step mm-hmm. and it's an exciting adventure to discover that uh, this is not a laborious thing. This mm-hmm. is not a have to, um, you know the, the the life of becoming like Christ is the flourishing, abundant, joyful life. It's the life we all want, mm. and it's available. That it's available, and you know we need to talk more about it as being available versus it's something I have to. And it becomes this this you know treadmill. You know, Pastor Jim says I have to take my next step. Oh man, you're missing it. You're missing everything if that's what you, you you're hearing. It's that there's a step available. You can continue to grow. There's, yeah. there's a life out there waiting for you. That's so. It's not heaven, you know. It's it's the kingdom of God here and now, mm-hmm. and it's available. This is what Jesus was announcing. Yep. You know, it's available now. The kingdom of God is among you. It's here. Uh, so, um, yeah, I want to invite people into the adventure and you know, and to jump in and. and you know, do the exercises in the excursion. Get in a life group, um, mm-hmm. the excursion guide. Do, get in a life group. Take advantage of the the, the venture t- uh, tips and the um, the uh, appendixes, appendices. You say appendices or appendices? appendices. <laughs> um, there's a lot of material that we've packed in, mm-hmm. and thank you, thank you again, Clay, for all the work you've done to make the excursion guide happen. There's a lot we've packed into that, mm-hmm. and. You know, if someone really wants to grow, there's a lot of room for them to to pursue. Um, they're not tangents; they're ways to help you grow. Absolutely, yeah. And I think the survey, take the next step survey. Yes, and, yeah. And, and click on that URL that you'll get when you take it and explore. You know, each one of those uh, stages that that fits you, and then the resources that are there, mm-hmm. the next steps that are there, the books, the 
Yeah, there's well, man, there's so, there's so many goodies out there for people. <laughs> check it out. You know, seriously, check it out. Absolutely, yeah. And I, as we were kind of wrapping up the writing of the excursion guide, um, I I kind of like sat back and I was like, all right, so we've done a lot of editing, we we've done a lot of work, um, but at the end of the day, the excursion guide isn't what's going to save people <laughs> or help. You know, it's right. But if people, you know, if people, I believe if you give yourself to these exercises, God will use it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so make yourself available to him. Yeah, that's, that's what's exciting to me about it is Absolutely. just the opportunity that's there. So These are steps that help you cross a chasm that you otherwise couldn't cross. Mm-hmm. You know, we're trying to make them as, as granular and, and, and helpful as possible. That's right. That's right. Everybody can grow spiritually. Everybody Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we so we invite you to join us as we uh, turn into this excursion for the next uh, six weeks, including this past week will mm-hmm. be seven. Yeah. And uh, Pastor Jim, thanks so much for joining me oh, for this man. conversation. I love we love chatting together. <laughs> and until next week, we'll sign off. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the Open Door Cutting Room Floor Podcast. But don't let the conversation end here. Find a group where you can deepen your roots at connect.opendoor.tv. And don't forget to submit your questions to podcast.opendoor.tv. Have a great week, and we'll see you Sunday.